Okay, so today we're looking at Psalm 7. Uh, I've asked Tim if he can read that, Tim Carden. Tim Nugent, in case you're suddenly panicking. No. <laughs> uh, and read the read that. Yeah. You've got to read that bit. Yep. Which you sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it to pieces with none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friends with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Selah. Pause and come Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. O, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous. You who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God, my shield is the Lord, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge, and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. His bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. Okay. Thanks, Tim. Let's pray before we start. Lord, teach us how to value your word. Teach us how to be your people. Open our hearts and minds to you today. Amen. Now, once again, we find ourselves reading a psalm that contrasts the wicked and the righteous. That theme actually seems to weigh heavily on David's mind. And each of these psalms has unpacked a different aspect of this difficult conflict. So let's look at what this psalm speaks about. Now a key to understanding this psalm is in the title, not that weird word shigeon, which is a weird word because we don't know what it means. And so it's just a a transliteration of the Hebrew. Rather, we should be aware though that these these words are in the Hebrew text. um, We don't really know when they were added, but it was very early on. And so they are very useful to understanding the Psalms. And in this one, 
we can see that it tells us that David wrote this psalm concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. So this psalm is a response to some words. And yet, the psalm starts with this. How could the words of this unknown Benjamite Cush cause the king of Israel to flee to God for refuge? How could these words, like a lion, tear his soul apart? It's of course no coincidence that Cush was a Benjamite, the tribe of David's old enemy Saul. So we can see that there's a bit of enmity there. But how can words have so much impact? It's worth looking at our present day. So let me tell you a couple of stories about the power of words A couple of weeks ago, the ABC reporter Louise Milligan breathlessly reported that that an anonymous letter and dossier of evidence had been sent to various leaders in the Australian Commonwealth Government accusing an unnamed cabinet minister of historical rape. Details were sparse, but the media jumped all over this story and continued to obsess about it until the minister in question outed himself. He turned out to be the Attorney General, Christian Porter, of Australia, one of the highest officers in the land. The evidence against him was and remains nothing more than words. This is most of them. This actually uh, is a key part of the so-called dossier of evidence, which was released in the the weekend Australian yesterday. In fact, the New South Wales police have dismissed the case since there's insufficient evidence to actually do anything legally. Now, we don't know whether the Attorney-General's guilty of the alleged crime or not, because all we have is words. Nonetheless, many commentators believe that he can no longer continue as Attorney General simply because he has been accused of this crime, regardless of the reliability or otherwise of the evidence. In other words, many people believe that mere words with nothing else backing them up, no evidence, no other supporting witnesses, to the crime, nothing, mere words are sufficient to cast the Attorney General out of his office. Words have power. As if this were not enough to convince you of the horrendous power of words in today's world, consider this week's media storm. A woman has accused her in-laws of all sorts of horrible treatment, offering no evidence whatsoever to support her case. Nonetheless, millions have made up their minds that the in-laws are guilty of such outrageous crimes, commenting on the tone of a child's skin. I'm speaking, of course, 
about Meghan and Harry's interview with Oprah. Given the furor that uh, over the alleged racism of the royal family, it's actually worth looking at the words that caused this. This is from the tran- a transcript of the interview. And you can see, Megan says, but I can give you an honest answer. In those months when I was pregnant, all around the same time, so we have in tandem the conversation of he won't be given security, he's not going to be given a title, and also concerns and conversations about how dark his skin might be when he's born. What? And who, who is having that conversation with you? What? So there's a conversation. Hold on, hold up, hold up. Stop right now. There were, there were several conversations about it. There's a conversation with you, with Harry, about how dark your baby is going to be, potentially, and what that would mean or look like. And you're not going to tell me who had the conversation? I think that would be very damaging to them. Okay, so how, how does one have that meeting? That was relayed to me from Harry. Those were conversations that family had with him. So, there's a second-hand report of a potential conversation on how dark baby Archie's skin might be, and that is supposedly rocking the royal family of the United Kingdom. Words have the power to tear down kings or queens. Have you ever been accused Have words been thrown at you to hurt you? Thanks, Luke. (laughs) I'm sure that's happened. As kids, we throw words at people as if they're mere twigs. And it's only our youth that does actually reduce their weight and therefore their impact. But as we get older, our words take on weight. And if we keep throwing them around, they start hurting people. The reality is, if you've been in any close relationships, you've probably been hurt by accusations. Husbands and wives throw them at each other all the time, although this is often kept private, at least until it spills into something like divorce. Workplaces often breed conflict, and it often spills out into the open. I remember arriving in the US office of Dascom, a company that I co-founded years ago, and being besieged by accusations of all types with the hope that I would take up arms against others on behalf of the person uh, petitioning me. So if you think back in your life, I'm sure you can remember times when you've been deeply wounded by the accusations of another The natural question to ask in the face of such events is what could I do if such types of accusations were levelled against me? And this is the question that David is wrestling with in Psalm 7. It's worth looking at the process that David follows because it's actually a very holy one rather than a human one. David's first response is to seek refuge in God. Now remember, David is the king of Israel. He has the power of the entire state behind him. 
He's a king of an ancient nation. There's no bureaucracy stopping him. And yet he doesn't simply lash out. Instead, he flees to God. What a lesson that is for us. Today, our responses tend to be more like Harry and Meghan's. We've been hurt, so we flee to Oprah or as close as we can get to Oprah in order to inflict maximum damage on those we believe have hurt us. But that's not the way of the righteous. God is our deliverer, not the media, not the law, not the mob. The second thing David does is equally weird. Instead of defending himself, he examines himself. Am I guilty of this accusation, he asks. And if I am, he adds, then let me be squashed like a bug. Is that how you've reacted when people have accused you of something? Do you instinctively wonder, am I really this sort of person? Did I really do that? And if I did, well, I deserve to be punished. It might seem impossible to react this way, but it's not. In fact, it's quite possible to react this way, providing two things are true. The first one is that you love God and his ways. And the second one is that you're not guilty of the accusation. You see, a guilty person will panic and try to hide their guilt, usually by lashing out, pointing away from themselves. An innocent person has nothing to hide, so they can be open about their own behaviour. Now, no one's innocent of any wrongdoing, but there are plenty of people who are innocent of accusations made against them. People who say, didn't do evil to their friends, or plunder their enemies, or deal in lies and violence. That's in the next section. Such people can afford to be open with their accusers. Their innocence speaks for itself when their lives are properly examined. The third thing is that David thinks about God's wrath. Those who make false accusations should fear God's anger. God is a righteous God. He loves justice and he will punish those who deal in lies and violence. It doesn't matter how corrupt the world, our own nation becomes. That'll always be true. This will always be our hope and refuge, especially since the blood of Christ covers our sins. But David thinks about God's justice too. God's justice cuts two ways. And here, I think, in the heart of the psalm, we find the key to David's response. Integrity. A person of integrity has nothing to fear from God or from true justice. Lies and corruptions do hurt everyone, 
But even in the midst of lies and corruption, a person of integrity still stands tall. Their confidence in God's justice allows them to cry out to him, unafraid for themselves. You see, if, if, the, man of, if the attorney general is a man of integrity, he has nothing to fear. Sure, the mob can bay, the pathetic journalists can proclaim their victim mentality, but his innocence will testify against them all. If, on the other hand, the Attorney General is a man who is only righteous on the surface, who has hidden guilt, then it doesn't matter what he does. He will fall. The Chief Law Officer of the land cannot be a man who hides crimes. Integrity is key. The same is true of the royal family. If their generous welcome of Meghan was genuine and they have no reservations about her or anyone else's race, then they have nothing to fear. If they harbour secret sins, though, and I'm not talking about the sins of past royals that are well and truly picked over, then they're in for a rough time. The figureheads of a racially diverse nation cannot be racist. Integrity is particularly important for Christians. Like the Jews, we are intended to be light to the nations. We're here on earth rather than already up in heaven for one purpose, to share the gospel. If we have integrity, if when we're accused, we can openly demonstrate our innocence, not of every sin, but certainly of what we've been accused of, then we can share the good news. If, on the other hand, we don't have integrity, if we are guilty of secret sins, then God's justice will cut away that sin ever so painfully. And he might use the accusation of others and the consequent loss of position, reputation and livelihood in order to free us from the rot of sin. But of course, even having integrity doesn't mean that we won't suffer. What it does mean is that our suffering will be entirely the responsibility of our enemies. We will not have brought any of it on ourselves. And ultimately... We are promised that we will be rewarded for that suffering. So we can count that suffering as joy. Remember Jesus. Remember how he, accu- how he reacted when he was falsely accused. When Pilate said, Don't you hear what crimes they say you've done? Jesus did not say anything. And Pilate was amazed. Jesus didn't need to point away from himself because he had nothing to hide. Finally, David turns to the most important action we can take to preserve our integrity. Repentance. Now you might be surprised that repentance is required to preserve integrity. 
shouldn't not sinning in the first place be the measure of integrity? Well, that might work in a fantasy world where human beings never did anything wrong. But in the real world, where our selfishness and our ignorance guarantees that all of us have done something wrong at some stage, repentance is key. You might say, hang on. You and King David were just talking about integrity and how does repentance fit in with that? Well, that's worth answering. You see, repentance involves two things. First, stopping the evil you've been doing. If you keep doing something wrong, you haven't repented, no matter what you might think. If you've been talking contemptuously about a co-worker, for example, and you say you've repented, and yet you keep talking contemptuously about them, well, I don't think you have repented. And second, it involves publicly confessing your wrong. Now, what publicly confessing means depends on context. Generally, the public that needs to hear your confession is the people that have or will be impacted by your sin, that have been or will be impacted by your sin. So if you said something horrible to your spouse in an argument while you were alone in your house and you repented before any ill will could affect the rest of your family, then only your spouse and God needs to hear your confession. If, however, you falsely called someone a lying cow in a room full of people who then spread it far and wide, well, your public confession involves everyone who's heard your contemptuous comment. Does that make sense? For someone in a public position, public repentance is important. If everyone knows your past sins and still approves of you, they can't suddenly turn around and condemn you unless you do some new wrong. This works even in a society that doesn't hold to the Christian ideal of constant forgiveness. On the other hand, if you keep sinning instead of repenting, then as David says, you're digging a pit for yourself to fall into. And so we find ourselves recognizing the glorious goodness of God's goodness. God's love of righteousness, his unchangeable justice. These things give us confidence that in the end, all will be well. As Jesus told his apostle John, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And so David ends recognizing that in the end, God is the one to whom we answer. Let's pray. Dear Lord, 
please keep us from sin. Keep our hearts and bodies pure so that we can share your word with power and integrity. Words do have power and your word has the power to bring life to the dead. Help us to remember that and to always dwell in your presence. Amen.